Good morning. Hope you're doing well. Welcome. Glad you're here. Today is the beginning of the Advent season where we take some time leading up with eager expectation to the celebration of the coming of a baby who was born in a manger. And so I'm so happy you're here today. About eight months ago, I got one of those mass marketing emails that we sometimes get from Ancestry.com. Have you guys ever gotten one of these things? And for whatever reason that day, they just got me. They just got me. And so I decided to take the plunge. I went to Ancestry.com. I signed up for the 30-day free trial that I canceled right at 29 days, right? And And I dove down deep in the rabbit hole of my Ancestry. Has anyone ever done this before, by the way? Has anyone ever done this? No one? Okay, I'm the only freak. Okay. So I signed up, and I put my information in, and, and it's, it's really interesting how this thing works, because it starts, you, you put in your parents' birthdays and, and different things, and it starts just unfolding this great map of people who may or may not be connected to you in your ancestry. And so it was really fascinating for me, because I, I knew a lot of things about my parents, because we, we grow up with our families, and we know all the skeletons in the closet, and all the things are there, and I knew a little bit about my grandparents, but when I started getting into my great-grandparents, I, I didn't really know a whole lot about them. I didn't re- even really know their, their names, and so it was fascinating that when, when, when I did this, I discovered, here, here's a picture of my genealogy dating back, and so I didn't know anything on my mom's side, but I, but I ended up getting back to about 1687 on my dad's side. It was really, really fast. I discovered that I had a great-great-grandfather on my dad's side who was likely a pastor. I had no idea. It was really interesting. I discovered that my family, the Wilsons, had moved to Arkansas from Tennessee sometime after the Civil War, probably in the late 1870s. I discovered that I had a sixth great-grandfather who was a captain in the Revolutionary War in North Carolina. I even discovered that my family, the Wilsons, migrated from a region called Tyrone in Ulster, Ireland, uh, to the United States in the early part of the 1700s. Really, really interesting stuff. My favorite part, though, I went even deeper, and I discovered that the family crest for Wilsons in that part of Ireland looked something like this with this weird wolf tongue creature on this thing, right? (laughs) And so I went pretty deep down this rabbit hole. And the really interesting thing for me was as I started looking at these people and seeing their names and reading little snippets about some of the ones that, that there were different clippings from, I started thinking about their lives. I started thinking about their stories. I, I wondered about the kind of people they were. What kind of character did they have? What, what kind of struggles did they have? And then I wondered how connected to my story is their story? Or maybe another way to put it is how, how much am I defined by those people? How much of our story is defined by our family. You ever think about this? I mean, just take a second to think about it. Think about every skeleton in your family closet, every broken thing in your parents or grandparents, every dysfunction, every shameful thing, and then take that back about 10 generations. Start piling all that stuff. How much does all of that stuff define us? The struggle is real. And so this morning, we're going to take some time to look at another ancestry, another genealogy. And this ancestry is one that's filled with virtues and vices. It's filled with people who were of pure character. It's filled with people who were immoral. It's filled with good kings and bad kings. 
Today we're going to look at Jesus' ancestry. As we celebrate Advent and look toward the coming of Christ, we want to look at his family, the family of Jesus. And really what I want you to see as we work through our text this morning is this. Jesus came to save his dysfunctional family. Every single one of us, ad nauseum, in this room comes from some kind of dysfunction. It may not be you, it may not be your parents, it may be your grandparents, or maybe the people that you've come from in the past, but every one of us, we have skeletons in our closet, and Jesus came to save us from our dysfunctional families by bringing us into his family. That's the talk. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to gather together here this morning. We pray that you would come and meet us in this place. We pray that you would stir up our affections for you, God. We pray that you would make us more like Christ in this place. Thank you for this season of Advent. Thank you for this season of Christmas that reminds us to slow down, to wait, to expect that it's okay to hope in the midst of darkness. It's okay to come from dysfunction because you redeem and use all kinds of donkeys, Lord. And so come and meet us here, Jesus. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Please open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 1. And, and, and we're doing a, a couple different things. We, we are starting this little trek towards Christmas and Advent, but we're starting a new teaching series this morning on the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to be in this book over the next several months for a long time, looking at the Gospel, the story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ through the eyes of the disciple Matthew. And, 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 the, and the Gospels are, as you know, the recordings of, of the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus, things that he said and taught us and things that he did to substantiate who he was. And there is little doubt that this Gospel, the Gospel of Matthew, was the most formative Gospel in the history of the early church. This was the one that was most circulated. This was the one that was most passed around because it contains more teachings of Jesus Christ than any Gospel that we have. And so we're going to take a while to, to trek through this book, to look at it, and to see what, what, this, what's, what we can learn, what we can glean from this thing. But before we do that, let, let's just orient ourselves to Matthew. Before we get to our text for today, let's look at Matthew. Let's look at some facts about Matthew. If you're a note taker, this will be a good time to take some notes because we're going to be talking broad overview structure type things. So facts about Matthew. Who wrote Matthew? Although the, all of the Gospels are technically anonymous, uh, we can very certainly say that Matthew Levi, the tax collector disciple, was the author of this account of Jesus's life. And, and, and we meet Matthew in chap- Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus sees him at a tax booth and he calls him to be his disciple. Tax collectors were some of the most hated people in Jewish society. They were seen as traitors to their own nation because they sold themselves to the Romans to work for the pagan government. Each tax collector purchased from Rome the right to gather taxes, and the more taxes they gathered from people, the more money that they could make. And so they were, they were not just traitors, they were thieves. They were, they were taking more taxes than they thought they ought to. And, and yet Jesus comes by this sinful, broken tax collector guy, and he says, I want you to come follow me, and he drops everything, and he leaves his life of sin behind, and he follows Jesus. 
It's really interesting. There's some discrepancies when you read different commentaries or scholars. They wonder why he has two names. Why is he called Matthew and some and Levi and others? Some of them think that he had a name change here, like Peter had a name change. You're going to be called Cephas, the rock, or Paul had a name change from Saul. So they think that at his conversion, you go from Gentile tax, Jewish tax collector to Matthew Levi, this, this new name that Jesus is giving him. And, and we see that immediately after his conversion, Matthew does something really interesting. Check out his response here in Matthew chapter 9. He invites Jesus to his home, and then he invites all of his miscreant, scandalous friends to have a meal at his house. Can you believe a Christian would do that, right? And, and, and all the Pharisees and tax collectors get a little frustrated at Matthew and Jesus and the disciples for this. And they say, your rabbi, your teacher, he's eating with sinful people. Why is he doing that? And this is a theme that Matthew is going to unpack throughout the book. And here's the response. Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I've come to call, not call the righteous, but to call the sinners. And so he's going to unpack this theme of, of caring for the broken and the needy and the sinful. You see the, the religious leaders and the Pharisees pitted against the, the people who are needy and broken and humble. And Jesus says, those are the people that I want to spend time with. When was Matthew written? Matthew, the, the precise date is, is not known, but all indications are that it was written sometime before AD 8100 and likely before AD 70 in the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, Irenaeus, who was a church father, tells us that, that Matthew likely wrote this gospel while Paul and Peter were still alive, with the traditional date being around 50 to 60 years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. How many? So that's about 20 to 30 years, 50 to 60, 80, 20 to 30 years after the resurrection. Can you remember anything that happened 20 to 30 years ago? And so he's writing down these memories, the, the experiences that he had with Jesus about 20 years after the resurrection. Who's the audience? Matthew doesn't mention a specific audience like Luke. But as you examine the book, you see that there's this clear message that he's trying to give. He's writing to Jewish people, either Jewish converts to the faith in order to strengthen their faith, or skeptical Jews who need convincing that Jesus is who he said he was, that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David. And, and actually, one of the key words in this book is the word fulfilled, the word Fulfilled. Matthew uses this word about 15 times throughout the book. And what he's trying to do is present this argument that Jesus came and he fulfilled all of these Old Testament promises that were pointing forward to the coming of a Messiah. Jesus came and fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament. In fact, there were about 129 quotations, direct quotations, or allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Matthew. It's amazing. A really great thing for, for you to do as we study Matthew, in your personal time, go through Matthew and highlight everywhere there's a quote of the Old Testament. Highlight it, mark it. Anytime there's an allusion to the Old Testament. And what you begin to see is Matthew is forming this argument. He's trying to tell us something. And what's he trying to tell us? Well, it's his purpose for the book. It's that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the promised and prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament which is why Matthew sits perfectly, beautifully, right 
between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's right there kind of telling us this, he came to fulfill all of these things. The key passage in Matthew, Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. All of these things are fulfilled in me. I am the coming king. I am the Messiah, he says. And so what's the theme of Matthew? What's the theme of this book? Well, since Jesus is the promised and prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament, that means he is our king. He is the, the, the son of David, the heir of David. He is the one who will sit on the throne forever. And I think it's fascinating that Matthew even writes this as the very charge that the Romans had against Jesus. Matthew 27, 37 says, Above his head they placed a written charge. The charge against him was, He claimed to be the king of the Jews. That is the point of this book. He wants us to see the king has come. The king has arrived. The word king is used around 22 times in this book. And so the theme of Matthew then is the king and his kingdom. The king and his kingdom. The king has come. And the kingdom looks like something. And Jesus unpacks for us what the kingdom looks like. That's why Matthew presents more of Jesus' teaching than any other gospel. In fact, Matthew presents five different sermons or discourses that Jesus gives us throughout the course of this book. Five sermons communicating what the kingdom of God looks like. Matthew 5 through 7 gives us the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' most famous sermons talking about what kingdom life looks like. What does life in the kingdom look like? Matthew 10 presents kingdom mission. What is the mission of the disciples in the kingdom of God? Matthew 13, parables of the kingdom. What is the nature of the kingdom and the disposition of those who enter it? Matthew 18, kingdom community. What does the community of believers look like? Matthew 23 through 25, the Olivet Discourse. Jesus came in his ministry on the earth. He inaugurated the kingdom of God. But someday, in the second advent, he's going to come back and fully consummate the kingdom. And so what does the future messianic kingdom look like? That's what he gives us in the Olivet Discourse. And so Matthew, he's not only telling us that the king is here, the king has come. He's saying, here's what the kingdom looks like. If you want to know what life looks like in the kingdom, read Jesus' words in this. And an interesting thing that happens as you look at the overall structure of Matthew is that you have these discourses or sermons, and in between those, you have these narrative pieces. And so Jesus will stand up and teach and, and, and instruct about what the kingdom looks like, and then you'll have these stories of Jesus healing people, healing paralytics, and healing blind people, and raising people from the dead. Stories of Jesus going into the temple and making a whip and driving people out of it. And what these narrative sections are there to do is to say, not only does Jesus give us words, not only is he teaching us what the kingdom looks like, but he is someone who has the authority to make these bold declarations. He is someone who heals. He is someone who has the authority to drive people out of his father's temple. And so we see the overall outline or structure of this book looks something like this. The first four chapters, we see the introduction of the king, and we see the, the narrative about the birth 
of Jesus. And then we see his baptism by John the Baptist. And, and then we get into the message and the ministry of the king. And that's when we really start rotating back and forth between these sermons that Jesus gave and then these works, these miracles that substantiate his messianic ministry. And then the last, oh, 12 chapters, we get the death and resurrection of Jesus, the story of what he came to do for us. And so that's the structure of the book. One fascinating thing that one of the commentators pointed out that I thought was interesting is that some people think that Matthew is giving five sermons of Jesus that correlate with the five books of the Pentateuch, the the law that Moses gave, to show that Jesus is a new Moses. Jesus is the prophet who's greater than Moses, who's come and who's not only giving us the law, but he's saying he is a direct divine authority to interpret that law. And so if you lay it out, it's this really interesting structure that we have here. That's Matthew. It's going to take us a long time to unpack a lot of those things. We're going to be in this book for a little bit, but we're really excited to be back in a gospel. We felt like during the next season of our church, we really needed to get back into the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus. Okay. Let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. This is our text for today. We are looking at the introduction to the book of Matthew and the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Confession. Who just skips over stuff like this? I really just need to get to the really good stuff, the stuff that I can understand. I can't read that name. And so we just skip over this stuff. But what I want to tell you is we believe this is the stuff. We believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and it's useful for the edification of the body. We believe that there is something here for us to take. And so we're going to look at the story of the ancestry of our king. And we're going to read the whole thing. Because God's word is rich and full and deep, and it's going to sound like I'm reading the phone book, and so bear with me. (laughs) Let's read Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, whose husband who was the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called Messiah, 
the anointed one. This is God's word to us. Amen? Amen. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. True story. We had some friends who years ago, they had three kids who ranged from 10 to 14 years old, and they memorized this genealogy as a Christmas gift for their parents. Isn't that amazing? They were homeschooled, right? And so <laughs> it was amazing. It was amazing. And we were there. They, they did it for us. I was like, wow, this is unbelievable. What an incredible Christmas gift, right? So right out of the gate, Matthew gives us the thesis statement for his whole book. He says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you'll remember that the purpose of this book, he's trying to convince Jewish converts or skeptical Jews that Jesus is this man. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the king of Israel. And that word genealogy in the Greek is this really fascinating word. It's this word Genesis. And so just like The book of Genesis gives us the beginning of the creation of God and his covenant relationship with the people of Israel. Right here at the beginning of a New Testament, we have the genesis of a new people, a new community of faith, a new covenant that God is not just making with the people of Israel, but he's making it with the whole world. And I don't want you to miss this because this, this verse is power-packed. There's a reason that Matthew starts with, with these statements right here. To, and to a Jew who's reading this passage, they would see this and they would immediately be drawn back to the two foundational covenants of the Old Testament. Those two covenants were the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7 and the Abrahamic covenant from Genesis 12 and Genesis 22. And if you've never done a study of the covenants that are found in Scripture, I think that it's a really, really amazing thing to do. Go back and look at these because everything builds on each of these. The Davidic covenant was a promise that God made to King David that he would have a son, someone in his lineage who would perpetuate his throne forever, that there would be a king who sits on his throne forever. And this is someone that Israel had great expectation for. This is someone that they longed for, someone that they were waiting for because Israel was a mess. They were an absolute mess. The kingdom was in constant flux. And and since the time of the Babylonian exile, the nation had no sovereignty of their own. They had no king. They had no ruler. They were always subjugated under the oppressive rule of some people, whether it was the Babylonians or Assyrians or Greeks or, or, or we finally get here to the Romans. And what they're doing is waiting and expecting and longing and hoping for the coming of a king who will set them free from the oppression of the enemy. They're starving for it. They're pining for it. Seventeen different times in the book of Matthew, he refers to Jesus as the son of David. The son of David. And what Matthew's trying to say is Jesus is the son Jesus is the king. He is that figure. He is the long-awaited Messiah king. The Abrahamic covenant was this promise that God made to Abraham that he would have an offspring whom would bless all peoples on earth. God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12. He said, go and leave your country and your people and your family and all that's familiar to you and obey me, not knowing where you're going to go. And you know what's amazing? Abraham obeyed. 
he went. And so God made him a promise. I love this. I love Abraham's relationship with God. He was God's friend. Here's what he said to him. Abraham, because you've obeyed me, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so this is the Abrahamic covenant. And when, G, when Matthew calls Jesus the son of Abraham, what he's saying is he is the one who is fulfilling this promise. The one who will bless all peoples on earth is here. The son of Abraham is here. He is the, this is the most inclusive, exclusive thing in the history of the world. It, 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 it's for everyone. All people can be blessed through the Messiah, not just the Jewish people. And so he's come to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. This is a power-packed first section. Matthew even ends his book kind of pointing us to this truth where he gives us the Great Commission. You know what he says? Go and make disciples of who? Everybody, all nations, every ethne, every people group. So he is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. He is the one who will free and set all people free and bless them, bless all peoples on earth. And I love what Tim Keller says about this passage. He has a great little book called Hidden Christmas, if you've never read it. And he makes the point that Matthew is grounding the arrival of Jesus in history. He's starting with a genealogical record. He doesn't begin his story with once upon a time, like, like all of our fairy tales start with, right? It, it, this is not a, a fiction. This is not a fairy tale. He's saying this happened in the history of the world. This is something that happened. This is good news that has occurred. This is not some Aesop fable that we look at and we try to pull out the moral of the story here. This is not good advice for how to live. This is good news. And that's the first point I want to make here. The gospel is good news, not good advice. It's good news, not good advice. Here's what Keller says. I love it. Advice is counsel about what you must do. News is a report about what has already been done. Advice urges you to make something happen. News urges you to recognize that something has already happened, and you must respond to it. The gospel is good news, not good advice. Several Weeks ago, Katie and I watched a movie. It was a terrible movie. It was, the, it was the remake of The Magnificent Seven. Did anyone see this? It was really, really bad. And if you don't know the story, it's this Western. Everyone's like, yeah, oh, yeah, I know, that's terrible. It's this Western movie where some bad guy comes in, and he tries to, to oppress the people of this really small town. And so this young gal decides she's going to go recruit seven gunslingers to come and protect them from the bad guy that's coming. And there's this montage scene where, where the, the gunslingers finally make it into town and they, they're with the townspeople and they're trying to train these farmer, miner type guys to shoot and they can't shoot and they're trying to teach them battle strategy. They're, they're giving them a series of good advice on how to not die in the upcoming battle that's going to happen. What if the story was the seven gunslingers rode their horse straight to the enemy's camp and they subdued him and they defeated him, and all they had to do was come to the town, go back to the town where the people lived, and say, the enemy has been defeated. That's good news. 
It's not good advice. Good advice is how do you fix the problem that's ahead? Good news is the problem has been taken care of. It has been fixed. Amen? So what Matthew's trying to say here at the beginning of this book is it's the equivalent of the war is over. The war's over. The Nazis have surrendered. Go, you can YouTube Harry Truman's uh, speech right after the Nazis surrendered. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible speech. The war is over. We don't have to fight anymore. We don't have to strive anymore. We don't have to strategize anymore because the king has come. The gospel is good news, not just good advice for us. Okay. Next thing that I want to point out here is that this, this passage is not what you would think. This is not a who's who list of the best, bright, and beautiful in the Bible. Okay? This is, this is a, a genealogy that highlights 46 different people whose lives span the course of about 2,000 years. All of them are ancestors of Jesus, but they vary widely in their personal, spiritual development, and their experiences, and in their faithfulness to God. Because genealogies were really, really important in, in ancient times, especially to Jews. To, to a Jewish person, a genealogy would have been the equivalent of your resume, the thing that you put together to show people why you're important, to prove your pedigree, to show you who you're connected to, and why that makes you significant, right? And, and here's the thing about resumes. We tinker with resumes quite a bit, don't we? I mean, we leave out information that doesn't need to be uh, in there, useless or, or maybe uh, scandalous information, unsavoring, unflattering details. We leave all that stuff out because we're trying to put our best foot forward and present ourselves as a candidate that a potential employer would want to hire, right? And it was pretty common in ancient times for people to do this in genealogies as well. If you study Herod the Great, Herod the Great actually did this. He went through his genealogy and just crossed a bunch of names out, all the unsavory characters, everyone that he didn't want to be associated with, everyone in his family that he was ashamed of or embarrassed by. He, he blotted their names out of his genealogy. He edited his genealogy. Yet, we don't see that here in Matthew, do we? We see a list of some unsavory characters. Jesus' family definitely had some skeletons in the closet. In case you didn't know what that looked like, there's a picture. <laughs> definitely had some skeletons in the closet. And so I, I want to give you a snapshot of Jesus' family, just as it's listed right here in, in Matthew chapter 1. It's really fascinating. Let's start with, with this. There are a list of four women in the genealogy of Jesus, five if you count Mary, who also had some scandal surrounding her birth, right? Four women listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, during this time, women were extremely marginalized, unbelievably marginalized. It made no sense to list women in your genealogy if you're trying to impress anyone to any degree, made no sense. And so women were these, these gender outcasts in the society. And so listing them would do nothing to advance. And these women were particularly scandalous. They had some very interesting things happening in their lives. Let me give you an example. Go back up to verse 3 where it says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. You could just read right over that. But if you go back to the story, it's really fascinating. Uh, do you know how this happened? Do you know how 
Judah became the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Tamar dressed up like a prostitute and tricked her father-in-law Judah into sleeping with her. And Judah didn't know it was her. And so when Tamar showed up to the camp pregnant, Judah was outraged. And he demanded that she be stoned to death in front of the camp. And that's when he found out he was the baby daddy, right? And this is like an episode of Jerry Springer, if you read through this list. It's really, really, really interesting. This was an act of deceit and incest. This was against the law of God. This is a really, really shady character here. Or take David and Bathsheba, by the way. David and Bathsheba, commentators think that Bathsheba is called Uriah's wife in this story, not so much to denigrate Bathsheba's character, but to bring to mind in the reader's, bring back to mind for the reader the story of David's abhorrent act against his mighty man, one of his best friends, Uriah the Hittite. You remember the story. He seduces Uriah's wife, gets her pregnant, and then in order to try to cover it up, David, David, David says, hey, you need to come and sleep with your wife. And Uriah refuses to do this because he's one of those faithful guys. He goes, no, I'm going to go back out to war. And when Uriah refuses, David has him murdered. This is David. And so this isn't the best, bright, and beautiful here. these These are not morally upstanding people. These people were moral outcasts as well, people who rejected God, people who turned away from his commands, right? And yet, we're told that Jesus was the lion of the tribe of what? Judah. And we're told that he's in the lineage of Solomon, who's the son of who? David and Bathsheba. Very interesting. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute. She's listed here. Ruth was a Moabitess. We just taught through the book of Ruth. Go back and listen to it. It's a very fascinating book. Did you know there's a specific command in the law, Deuteronomy 23.3, that says, to the 10th generation, a Moabite was not to be admitted into the assembly of God. Anybody who's ethnically Moabite can't come into the family of God. And yet we see Ruth is the great-grandmother of who? David, in the lineage of the Messiah. It makes no sense to list a bunch of Gentiles who weren't allowed into the family of God in a genealogy if you're trying to impress a bunch of people. And so we have racial outcasts, gender outcasts, moral outcasts, racial outcasts. Then we have this list of kings. Some of these kings were really great kings. Josiah was a great king. The boy king brings back the law of God to the people. But then we have some really terrible kings, kings who it's said about them, quote, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. How would you like to have that on your tombstone? Josh, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Wow, that's great. (laughs) People who were terrible, terrible people. And so in this list, we have these faithful and devout kings, and we have these false kings who worship false gods, who sacrifice children to Molech. We have some really terrible people, people who rejected Yahweh and his law, all in the lineage of Jesus. We have these racial outcasts. We have these religious outcasts here at the end. And so in Jesus' family, gender outcasts, moral outcasts, racial outcasts, we have adulterers, murderers, people who sacrificed children, we have people who were deceitful in all kinds of ways. Can you relate to this? 
Can you relate to this in your family, in your story? I come from a pretty dysfunctional family. My family is full of addiction and poverty and shame. Holidays are really hard for my family, really hard. I've sat in the hospital on a number of occasions when members of my family whom I dearly love, really close members of my immediate family have overdosed on drugs. It's happened more than five times. I have pulled up to a grocery store in our area, unbeknownst to me, and one of my close family members was being arrested for, for driving under the influence. Just happened to be there at the same time. I have walked through different seasons with my family, seasons where, where I was angry at them and frustrated at my family, and seasons where I was hurt by them, and certainly seasons where I was ashamed of them. Have you ever experienced that? Seasons where I tried to omit them from my genealogy, erase them. I've even had seasons where I used their dysfunction as an excuse to have my own dysfunction. You ever done that? It's human nature. We, we want to blame somebody else for our own misgivings when God holds us all personally responsible. And yet, Jesus doesn't do any of that. Amen? God worked to bring about the coming of Christ through an unbelievable amount of brokenness and dysfunction and pain and sorrow and all kinds of sordid people and affairs. Do you realize what that means? Do you know what that means? It means that God can work through your mess as well. God can work through all of your brokenness. He can work through all of your pain. He can work through the dysfunction in your family because Jesus' ancestry shows us that he came to save his dysfunctional family. He came to save his dysfunctional family. Jesus came to save marginalized women and the sexually immoral. He came to save the ethnically oppressed and the religiously empty. Jesus came to save my drug-addicted family members. He came to save me and all of my junk. Jesus knows how dysfunctional our family is. He knows how dysfunctional we are, yet he is not ashamed of us. Amen? Hebrews 2.11, I've just been sitting on this all week. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing that he's not ashamed of us? Think about how easily we're ashamed. And then Hebrews 13, 12 tells us that Jesus suffered outside of the city gate in order that we may be brought in. He became an outcast so that we could become members of his family. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And so my question for you this morning is, it's really simple. What brokenness in your life do you think is too big for this, Jesus? What brokenness in your family do you think is too big for this Jesus? Alcohol, adultery, abuse? Are you addicted to pornography? Are you impatient, prideful, self-absorbed? Are you, do you have a criminal record? 
I mean, what, what, list whatever thing you think is too big and look at Jesus' family. He is able to redeem all kinds of people from all kinds of places and bring us into the family of God. There is no one who is unable to tap into the righteousness and the grace offered at the cross of Calvary in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And so what he tells us then is that he is not ashamed of us. And that as we give our lives to Jesus, we're not defined by our family. You're not even defined by your personal sin and your junk. You're defined by Jesus. That is what defines you now. Not some mistake from the past. Not some video that the enemy is trying to play back in your head of some thing that you did at some point in your life. You are covered in the blood of Christ. Jesus came to save his broken family. And then guess what? He adopts us. He changes our name. We're brought into his family. John 1, 12, but to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become family. Family. And so we're not defined by our broken, dysfunctional families. We're defined by him when we believe and we receive him. And as this passage ends, there's something really beautiful that happens. Matthew 1.17, you could miss it if, you, if you're not looking. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And really what you have here is... is, is Three sets of 14, or you could also say you have six sets of seven. And seven is this biblical number of perfection. Jesus, uh, we're told that God rested. He Sabbath on the seventh day, right? Rest on the seventh day. We're told that in the Old Testament that every seventh year the land was supposed to rest so that it could bear fruit. We're told that every seventh seven years, every 49 years, we have this year called Jubilee, this year where all the land is returned back to the family. The inheritance is won back. That all slaves are free. All debts are paid. And what you have here is six sets of seven. And then the beginning of the seventh set of seven, do you know who you have? The Sabbath generation. You have the coming of Messiah. The one who sets us free and cancels our debts, and gives us an inheritance, and adopts us into his family. We have Sabbath rest in Jesus. Would you trust him today? This is what the hope of Christmas is about. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus that we are not defined by our brokenness. We're not defined by our family. We're not defined by 10 generations back. <laughs> How does a Moabitess enter into the family of God? She trusts in the name of the Lord. How does a prostitute enter into the family of God? She trusts into the name of the Lord. How does someone like David who commits such an abhorrent sin enter in not only the family of God but the blessed lineage of the king he trusts in the name of the Lord and would we do that same thing here today we thank you for your word 
which is alive and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. Continue the good work you've started in us. Remind us that we're defined by Jesus and nothing else. It's in your name we pray. Amen.